it is good to be with you. We are going to get back into Corinthians today, Correcting Carnality in Christ's Church. That's the series we just started probably about four weeks ago or so. <clears throat> Last Sunday, we wrapped up Paul's greeting. Uh, we had two parts in his greeting, and uh, we, we were focused on verses one or uh, chapter 1, verses 5 to 9, where the apostle reminded the Corinthian believers of nine grace-given blessings that they had in Christ. And the reason why he brought up what they have in Christ at that particular moment as he opens his letter was so that he could kind of till the soil of their hearts and prepare them for some pretty heavy imperatives or corrections. It's kind of a good idea to help people know what they have in Christ before you have to kind of lay out the discipline, you know, and, and that's what he did here, and it's, it's just a fascinating first set of nine verses. And uh, the, the imperatives or the corrections begin in verse 10 of chapter 1 and pretty much continue on through the whole letter. Now, there are indicatives mingled in or threaded into all the imperatives, and what indicatives are are those are expressions of what we do have in Christ or who Christ is. And so the letter's interesting. It's not like some of the other epistles where it's written where it's all kind of indicatives for half of the book, like here's what we have in Christ, here's what He's done, and then the rest of the book is imperatives, here's what you do with that. Corinthians, 1 Corinthians in particular, is a, it's a blend of all of that. So he kind of jumps back and forth between here's who Christ is, what you have, and here's how you should respond to that. Here's how you should live your life in, in light of what Christ has done. So it's kind of a mingling of imperative and indicative, which kind of sets it apart from his other letters where it's really just distinct, distinctive parts. And this is a little different. It's kind of a blending. But the corrections do begin in verse 10, and they're, they're heavy because there were some heavy carnal things being done in this church. So these are some heavy, heavy, heavy corrections. The first uh, carnal attitude or behavior that Paul addresses is what I just call carnal unity. You know, there's biblical unity that it's unity that's lived out and carried out according to Scripture, and then there's carnal unity that is more fleshly. And it's, it's more of the, um, we're pursuing the things of our flesh together. And that's the very first thing he addresses in this letter. And it's interesting because I think it's the longest correction of all the corrections. He does probably about 10 different things he focuses on in the letter, but he devotes a whole four chapters, almost entirely four chapters to this one subject. He's dealing with divisions in the church. He's dealing with carnal unity. If he put more emphasis and focus on this correction in this subject, what does this tell us about this subject? Probably the most important subject, probably at a heightened level of importance, the unity in the church. And so he devotes almost four chapters to this carnal unity and correcting that and showing what it should be and what their attitudes should be. Four full chapters just about. Now, the thing is, carnal unity is, is easy. You know, we all have things that cater to our flesh. We all have likes that go along with who we are and, and to our fleshly likes and desires. And so it's, it's really kind of easy to be in that sort of mode and to unite around our common likes. 
or our fleshly likes rather than the Spirit of God, rather than the truth. And I think that's what's going on here in the text. You know, uh, what happens is that, that it's the fleshly preferences that we have. And, and sometimes those fleshly preferences, we will pursue them and they'll also puff up our pride. And, and then we can start getting into divisions over those things. Like if I have a set of fleshly preferences and I find six other people in the church that prefer those things too, and they don't have to be overtly sinful, they can just be some kind of fleshly preference, and I find six other people who have the same preferences, we can unite as a band or as a club or as a group and then divide against those who share a different set of fleshly preferences. You understand how it works? You know what we call those? Clicks. That's what a click is. That's a click. Clicks band together over common likes, and they're usually fleshly things like Disneyland. I'll just put it out there. I know six people in here just tuned out, uh, but you know, I'll just put it out there. That's a, a fleshly kind of entertainment. You know, I'm, if, I'm, if I'm a fan of Disney, I'm a fan of old Disney, not new Disney, because new Disney's a disaster. But what I'm saying is it could be guns. Here, I'll go after myself. I like to shoot guns and all that. So, you know, if we got six guys in the church that are all gun guys, that's our fleshly preference. We hang out. We have, you know, gun-grabbing people or non-gun people in the congregation. We're obviously going to oppose them, right? You're on Newsom's team. I'm not, you know? So you have a fleshly like and a preference. It doesn't have to be overtly sinful. And then you gather people together that share that same likeness. And then you don't really care too much for people who don't share in those likenesses. Or maybe you do care for them because you know you're a Christian and you have to, but you don't really want to because they don't value and honor and pursue the same things that you honor and pursue. And so that's exactly what's happening in this church, but it wasn't Disneyland. That wasn't around yet. I don't even think they had theme parks in the first century. They had the Colosseum where they burned Christians. That was something to go watch. So, you know, Space Mountain? No, we have Christian candles. So a vastly different kind of entertainment in the first century. Pretty gory and bloody. You know, the gladiator battles and stuff like that. But in any case, people uniting over common interests, usually things that cater to the flesh. And, and that's what's going on in here. And, you know, it, it's easy, again, for this to happen. It's, what's easy to come out of this and to be manifest is division. It is. It, just division can come through this because we all have different likes. And when we find those who like what we like, we are willing to band with them and then maybe even divide with others who aren't in that kind of thinking. So, and that's what's going on here. I think we would all admit that it's easy for individuals and groups to disagree and clash on things. It could even be points of theology. It doesn't have to be recreation like Disneyland or guns. It could be a point of theology. It could be a stream of theology. It could be the Calvinist versus the Arminian or the Arminian versus the Calvinist. You can click up with people who share your likes and then next thing you know you're dividing. That's what's going on here. Um, it, it, literally, Paul talks about it. He says, I hear there's quarreling going on. And the quarreling is over these likes. You don't like what I like? Oh, well, then we're going to quarrel over it. And, and the thing that makes this even more astonishing in this church is that, again, it wasn't over recreation. It wasn't even over points of doctrine, which is the fascinating thing to me, because we have been known for 2,000 years to hammer each other over that. 
And it doesn't have anything to do with points of doctrine. It's not a theology. The whole issue in this church was over preferred teachers. Pastors, ministers of the gospel. Well, you know, if, if it was in this context, it would be something like, there's the Bruce group. They like the hey brother preaching. Hey brother, you know, they like that. They want that. And then they, they boast about that. And then when they say, well, but I like, I like Phil's group, as if I was even part of a group, but I like Phil's preaching more. Nah, Bruce is better and, you know, blah, 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 and Phil's too loud and he gets mad and he gets mean and he cries. You know, he's just, he's got problems. Bruce's group is much more stable. You know, I'm actually probably prophesying right now, uh, right? Well, uh, now, you know what, both those guys, they're okay. But I'll tell you what, yes, it's Cameron's group. Cameron's group, Cameron is the guy. He's the one that I prefer. I really like when he preaches because he makes really funny jokes. Cameron's thinking, I only tell one joke per sermon. Come on, you know. Or Dave hit it one time, and now he's the emperor of RHC. He preached one sermon, and everyone in the church, like, he's got a whole, he's got a whole clan now, the Davites. They don't really like the Philites. They don't really like the Bruceites. They're, they're okay with the Camites, but they are the Davites, and they're following Dave's kind of thread of preaching, and they like his style and his eloquence, and they love the fact that his sermon was 35 minutes. It, shut up. This is literally what was going on in this church. Uh, it, was, it was this guy over that guy, and then people banding behind them, and that's what's going on. Is it kind of hard to believe this was happening? No, because we have fleshly preferences, and you know, we, we like one person's, one guy's preaching over another, and, you know, but these people were taking it much further than that. It wasn't just, well, I prefer to sit under his teaching, like as if all fleshly preferences are wicked and evil, you know. It, it, it wasn't that, like, I just prefer his preaching. It was, I prefer it, and my guy's great, and your guy's lame. This is what they were doing. They were literally dividing over their ministers. It's just a crazy thing that's going on. And I think in some ways, this was an early attempt at denominationalism, making their own denominations. I really think it was an early attempt at that. Denominationalism really didn't happen until the Reformation because people broke off from the Roman Catholic Church and you, know, and you had the Lutherans and it, just, it kind of manifested itself then. But I'll tell you what, the first Corinthians, they were the first to try this. They were really trying to do it. Believers were saying they follow, you know, John Doe because they preferred his way of communication and they really appreciated his emphasis on particular truths. And they were really attempting, the Corinthians were attempting to make their own man-entitled groups long before the Augustinians came along, long before the Lutherans, long before the Calvinists, long before the Arminians, long before the Wesleyans who became the Methodists. All of those all of those denominations are essentially named after a man whom all those people think were the founders. If Calvin knew there were Calvinists today, he would have never entered the ministry. And maybe even Luther. So, you know, or maybe Augustine or Augustine, whatever your fleshly preference is on how it should be pronounced. Cameron will give you all three pronunciations in a sermon. I've heard it. Augustine, Augustine. I don't know what the third was. Yeah. Augie, yeah, Augie Morosco. 
So these guys were attempting to put together denominations under certain teachers, preachers, which is what we have today, and this is long before what we have today. And the thing is, is that it was based mostly on style, not substance, on style and eloquence and ability to communicate eloquently and clearly and maybe even philosophically to a degree. This is what people were really, really latching onto. Um, Charles Hodge, charge. Charles Hodge wrote this, and his commentary on 1 Corinthians is spectacular. He said, as one of the principal objects of this epistle was to correct the evils which had arisen in the church of Corinth, Corinth, the apostle adverts first to the divisions which there existed. The first thing that Hodge points out, the first thing that Paul points to is these divisions over these preferred leaders. And as I said earlier, the first imperative appears to be the longest in 1 Corinthians. There's just about four chapters devoted to it. It begins in verse 10 of chapter 1 and essentially ends at chapter 4, verse 21, where the apostle in chapter 4 basically says, here's how you're to view us. Not the way you are viewing us, but here's the way you're to view the apostles. So it kind of ends there. And as I said, this shows the importance of the subject. Unity in the body of Christ is absolutely essential. It really is. It's even commanded. And that's what we're going to focus on this morning. It's just the first section where Paul begins to deal with this very, very important subject. If you're not there, please turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. We're going to look at verses 10 to 16 today. There's so much said about this subject, we've got to really break it off in small sections. Not as small as the last couple of weeks, but we've still got to deal with small bits. I've entitled this message, Carnal Unity Part 1, We Follow Christ. Why? Because in the text you're going to see people saying, we follow this guy, we follow that guy. We follow Christ. That's our marching order. That's our mantra. I'm going to give you a, a set of A's, probably four. We're going to begin with our first A. It is Paul's appeal. First thing he does is appeal to these believers. Verse 10. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. Stop there. So the first thing that Paul does is he, really the whole text is an appeal, but he begins his appeal here to the Corinthians. And what is he appealing to them on? He is telling them to end their divisions, to pursue unity. As I said earlier, these divisions arose from these folks ranging themselves under different teachers or party leaders, if you want to call them that. That's what the division was over. And to emphasize just how serious this matter was, the apostle, notice whom he makes his appeal under or by. It is by the highest authority in the church. Right? You see it there? He does not point to the Pope. Why? Because... <laughs> The, the, the Pope is not the head of the church. He is an antichrist. He does not point to Constantine. Remember Constantine, the emperor who legalized Christianity in the Roman Empire? He does not point to him. He is not the head of the church. He does not point to Eastern Orthodoxy, their hierarchy. He doesn't point to that. That is the faction that was formed after Roman Catholicism was splintered and broke up. He doesn't point to 
to, to, to Eastern Orthodoxy or anything like that. Why? Because that is not the head of the church. He does not point to ecclesiastical councils. Why? Because ecclesiastical or church councils are not the head of the church. He does not point to, like, out to the future to the, to the reformers, right? Why? Because the reformers are not the head of the church. He doesn't point to the future Joel Boone or Jeremy Oldenberger or Glenn Berto or Damian Kyle, Matt Whiteford, Rick Countryman, Phil Baker. He doesn't point to anything other than the head and highest authority of the church, our Lord Jesus Christ. He appeals to them by appealing in and by the name of the church authority, the ultimate and the head, Jesus Christ. That right there tells us how serious this admonition, this correction is. Paul is, is an apostle in the church. If he were here today, all of us would have to submit to his authority. He had super high authority in the church. He could have easily appealed to his own apostolic authority here. But what does he do? Because of the seriousness of this matter, he goes way beyond himself. He doesn't say, I appeal to you in the name of the apostles or in my own name. I appeal to you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, the head, capital H, and the authority, capital A, of the church. That just shows us how serious this is. When somebody has to cite Jesus' name against you, you've done something really stupid. And that's exactly what we see here. He goes right to the top, right to the top. David Garland said, Paul's appeal comes in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and not solely on the basis of his own apostolic authority. As I said, he had really high authority. He even planted this church. He's the planting pastor, but he doesn't call upon his own name. He goes right to the top. He goes right to the CEO, right to the El Presidente, Jesus Christ, the, the builder of his church. And he builds his church in the gates of Hades, shall not prevail against it. Christ alone is the head of the church. Roman Catholicism will tell you that the Pope is the head of the church. He is not the head of the church. He is the head of a false religion. Jesus is the head of the church. He is the only head of the church. Ephesians 5.23 Christ is the highest authority in the church and over the church and literally over all things. Why? Because all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Him by the Father, Matthew 28, 18. Jesus is, or Christ is, I would just say Jesus Christ. I like to put the name together. I feel like it bears more authority. The Lord Jesus Christ. There's how we should say it. The Lord Jesus Christ. He is the high priest of the church, isn't he? Hebrews 4, 14. We have a great high priest. He's the highest priest. He is also the great priest prophet of the church with a capital P. Matthew 21, 11, Mark 6, 4, Luke 7, 16, John 4, 19, all speak to that. He is the great king and lord of the church, right? The king of kings and the lord of lords over all and especially over and in his church. 1 Timothy 6, 15. What is his name? It is above every name. Amen? Every name. It is above all names. Philippians 2, 9. 
Paul makes his appeal through our Lord Jesus Christ, the head, the authority of the church. And I think it would be better to say it even like this. It would be better to say that Christ is appealing to his church by his own name, by his own headship, by his own authority, through a mere um, human instrument, the Apostle Paul. What are we reading here? What is this? Is this Paul's word? This is the Bible. This is God's word. This is Christ's word. This was made flesh in Christ. This is the word of God. When we read this, we are not just reading some human author. That is the instrument, the pen by which God had his word recorded. So it would be better to say what? Christ is making his appeal based on his own authority here through a human instrument, Paul. That's what you're reading. That takes the importance and seriousness of this issue of divisions and unity about as high as you can go, doesn't it? It does, about as high as you can go. Now, I have not studied the rest of the letter as I have studied these, this first chapter. It'll be interesting to see if he cites this level of authority on the other carnal issues. I don't know if he does. I would think that what he sets forth here is the standard for all of his corrections. By the authority of Christ, he makes all of these corrections. It'll be interesting to see how that plays out. I want you to notice something here. Notice the appellation Paul uses at the beginning of verse 10. He says, brothers. The word brothers appears several times just in our handful of verses here. Brothers. He does not call them people or people who gather at a church or prospective members or visitors. Thank you for visiting RHC. He calls them brothers. What does that mean? It means these folks were not outsiders. These folks were not unbelievers. Now, their behavior kind of tells us that they had some issues and maybe there weren't some believers in there. And I think in every physical church, there are unbelievers. But he is talking to these people like they are Christians. He is not addressing them in an unchristian-like way. He is calling them brothers. And this isn't like the... the um, phileo expression of like how Jews would be toward other Jews, like every Jew calls another Jew a brother or a sister. He's not even doing that because half of this church is Gentiles. They're not even Jewish. This is the bona fide brothers. This means brother believers, brother, brother men, brother women in Christ. That's what he's saying here. Uh, Thomas Schreiner said this, twice in these verses Paul uses kinship language, brothers and sisters to denote his affection and love for the Corinthians. This is amazing that he even calls them brothers here because they, some of them weren't acting like brothers. I mean, if you're picking favorite preachers and then dividing over that, you're not acting like a brother Christian. You're not acting like a sister Christian. Yeah, there's a Night Ranger song, by the way. You remember that? Is anybody old enough to remember that? Only Keith. We need you guys to get older faster. In fact, Hunter, you turned 21 today. Happy birthday. Getting, you're getting old. Brother, sister, believers we're dealing with here. And it's amazing that he calls them brothers in light of their behavior because we don't tend to think of Christians when they're going bananas like these people as, hey, that's my brother in Christ. We say that's, he calls himself a Christian. Isn't that what we say? He sure calls himself a Christian, but I don't know, man, because, you know, he, he likes Striper more than all the other Christian bands, and he wanted to fight me because I like the Newsboys, you know. I mean, this is the stupidity of this here. These are brothers. These are brothers. And what is he telling them? He is essentially telling them, I want you all to, degree, uh, all to agree with one another. You need to agree. 
to, to agree what? With one another? Absolutely, but really it's broader than that. He wants them to, to all agree together to develop and pursue the same mind and the same judgment. That's what he says. You should all have the same mind as Christians. You're not robots, but you should all have the same mind when it comes to this issue. You should all have the same judgment when it comes to this issue. You should all be like-minded, precise, together when it comes to the issues that we're dealing with here. That's essentially what he's saying. Now, the Greek word for mind is noose. Noose. It's literally pronounced noose. And in the context, it, it represents a person's mental state, their mental state of mind. And the Greek word for judgment is uh, gnome. Gnome. It looks like gnome, but it's pronounced gnome. And it, it represents a person's understanding and maybe their broader purpose like what they understand and what they're supposed to do. So he's essentially telling them, I want you all to agree to the, to the, the same mind, right? The same mental state. All of you should have the same kind of mental state and all of you should have the same understanding and general or broader purpose together. Why is he saying this? Because that's not at all what they had. They had fleshly, carnal preferences, and they were dividing over these things. These people were not of one mind. They were not of one judgment. They were of many minds and many judgments, all because of the carnal flesh. And he's telling them, you need to all unite in the same mind and in the same judgment. You need to do this. I think what he's even saying, in a way, is what's implied, what he's saying is, you need to come to your senses, because your behavior is not Christian. It's not godly. You need to come to your senses. You need to embrace a proper understanding of the body of Christ. And you need to all together fulfill your broader. What was wrong with their frame of mind? Well, they somehow thought that forming divisive cliques under certain teachers was somehow okay. It was okay to have preferred preachers, and I think that is okay in a way, because we, we do have, that doesn't just have to be a fleshly thing. I mean, I, I certainly prefer R.C. Sproul over Osteen. Does that make me carnal? No, that makes me wise. That makes me smart. That shows something, you know, like, okay, he, he understands proper theology. He's not just in it because he likes that dude's teeth and the guy makes all kinds of empty promises all the time, Right? So it's okay to have a preference, but you can't divide over them. But they do have a, a divisive kind of mindset. You know, they're forming these cliques over certain teachers, and they think it's okay. I mean, they're just going along with it. And this is, it really isn't the mind. It's the mind of the flesh. It's the mind of the carnal flesh. It's not the mind of the spirit. This is carnal thinking. It's not just carnal thinking to prefer one preacher over another. It's carnal thinking to exalt that preacher over, above, over and above everyone else's preachers and then to divide over that. That's where the carnality comes in. That's where it becomes very, very sinful. And, and it's at this point that they needed to come to their senses. It is, Paul is saying, come to the right mind, come to your senses, because it's not okay to think and behave the way you are thinking and behaving. That is what he is saying here. What proper understanding did they need to embrace? It's very simple. Uh, something that they had somehow forgotten, that there is one head, Christ, and since there is one head over the body, 
there is one body, not many bodies. Do you see how they were trying to make many bodies under one body? All because of carnal unity and fleshly preference. So the understanding they need to come back to and return to is very simple. You have one head and there is one body, and you are all members of that body. You can't create your own head out of some preacher and have your own body with your own head. That's what they were trying to do. You can't do that. You can't have many heads in the church. There's one. It's Christ. This is what he is saying. You need to come to your senses and know that you cannot think this way and behave this way. You need to have the right understanding. There's one head. There's one body. Another thing they need to understand is that Christ is not divided in any way. We don't have a divided Christ. If we don't have a divided head and Christ, who is the head, then how can we have a divided body? We can't have a divided body. If, we don't ha- if our head is divided, then we can be divided. But our head is not divided at all. This is something else that he's trying to convey through, hey, come to your senses. Uh, Hodge again wrote, The sin and folly of such divisions are manifest in the first place because Christ is incapable of division. As there is one head, there can be but one body. As there is but one Christ, there can be but what? One church. That's the point, and that's exactly what Paul is teaching them here. And then lastly, right, because he's going after their mind and their understanding, come to your senses, have a right understanding. And lastly, he assails or assaults or attacks their broader purpose. You're supposed to have a broader purpose here. Your broader purpose is not to unify under your specific preferred teachers and then divide over it. Your broader purpose is to submit to Christ, you know, submit to your preachers, all of them. But the biggest thing of all is what? Unify. Keep the unity. Maintain unity. That is the Christian's broader purpose in this context, to do everything we can to keep the unity of the body. And do you know what that requires? Personal sacrifice, where you take your preferences and put them on the altar and let them be slaughtered and bleed out, then burn them up. If you don't make sacrifices to some of your own preferences... If you just run roughshod with those things, you're going to end up clicking up and dividing. You have to learn that your preferences do not prevail. They're not what's important in the church. What's important is the headship of Christ, the body maintain its unity and submission to Him. So the broader purpose for these brother believers and sisters is very simple. It is unity, which they do not have. They don't have that right now. They were to make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace, Ephesians 4.3. How can you maintain the bond of peace in the Spirit when you have all these preferences and you want to divide over them and fight over them? That's what they were doing. So that is the very first thing we see his appeal. He really hammers them on this. Let's move to the second A. It is Paul's alarm. Verses 11 and 12, we'll pick it up at 11. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. There's the appellation again, right? My brothers. Now this verse literally describes the whole basis of this letter. Really, the basis is broader than that, but the whole basis at least for this address right here in this section. The whole purpose for this admonition, the whole purpose for this imperative or correction 
It shows us why he's alarmed and what triggered him to address them in this way. It also demonstrates why it was necessary for him to issue this entire appeal in this first section, this strong imperative. imperative. And he says it very simply, Chloe's people, they had said something to him about what was going on. They had sent a report to Paul while he was in Ephesus, which wasn't too far away from Corinth. We don't know much about Chloe at all. She was probably a Christian woman who was very well known to the Corinthians. If he's going to mention her to this church, then obviously, I mean, if they don't know who she is, they're going to be like, who's that? They know who she is. So she's probably a well-known, godly woman. She may have even been a member of the Corinthian church. We don't know. We don't know anything about her people because it's literally not even Chloe that brings the letter or the report to Paul. It's her people that do that. Who are her people? Well, they're not followers of her per se because that would defeat the whole purpose of the unity here. These are probably her family members or close friends or fellow members that were close to her. They weren't clicking up under her, but they were closely tied to her. I think it's her family because if somebody says, well, you know, they belong to Phil's people, what are you thinking of? You're probably thinking of Ian and Ryan, and maybe you would be thinking of the people at RHC, but you're not my people. You belong to the Lord. I'd claim you as my own, but then I'd be committing this very sin. You belong to the Lord. So when we say, oh, they're part of his people, we're thinking of immediate family or maybe even distant relatives. But we really don't know. We really don't have all the answers. Whoever they were, Paul regards them as a reliable witness and assumes that the Corinthians would recognize their testimony and that it carried some kind of weight so that they could not just, you know, oh, it's just coming from Chloe's family. Forget it. It doesn't have any gravity. They would take this seriously because this woman was of high esteem and her family was pretty committed. So, And the report from Chloe's people stated that quarreling had arisen among the brothers at Corinth. It's a very simple report. Hey, we got trouble here. The Greek word for quarreling is eris, E-R-I-S, and it can be rendered as strifes, and it is rendered as strifes in the Tyndale, which is a good Bible. Uh, this Greek word eris is only used by Paul in the New Testament, and it appears usually in his vice lists. For instance, Romans 1.29, they were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, that's eris deceit, maliciousness, and then again in 2 Corinthians 12, 20, for I fear that perhaps when I come to you, I may find you not as I wish, that perhaps there may be quarreling, there's eris, jealousy, anger, hostility, slander, gossip, conceit, and disorder. And then again in Titus 3, 9, he says, but he admonishes uh, Titus here, but avoid foolish controversies, uh, foolish genealogies, dissensions, there's eris, that's where it appears and quarrels about the law, for they are all unprofitable and worthless. So now we know his alarm pertains to this report that he got. That's why he's alarmed. That's why he's addressing them about division, because he was told they're dividing over their preferred teachers. Verse 12, and here's where he literally explains it. What I mean is that each, of you, each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. This is what he says. Paul is describing here what he means by strifes. These brother and sister believers were claiming to follow various leaders in the church, which led to disagreements, quarreling, strifes. And he literally identifies four groups here in the text. First, 
he identifies those who follow Paul. What Paul is this? Is this our beloved Paul Rogers, the apostle of RHC? No, it's not him. This is Paul who's writing the letter. This is the apostle Paul. He is referring to himself. He just didn't say me. He is referring to himself. He is the planter. And I would say this, he is arguably the greatest Christian to ever live. I'm not justifying what they're doing, but I can kind of understand why they would rally under him because this guy was a stud. He was. Uh, The Apostle Paul is easily, to me, the most amazing Christian to ever live. I I would even, I, I guess in my own flesh and carnality, put him above Peter. But this guy is just, he is just a stud. 13 epistles. He wrote half of the New Testament. Come on, people. 14 if you add Hebrews like the Belgic Confession does. Everyone in the church believed that he wrote Hebrews for a long time. He has this apostolic authority. He has incredible accomplishments. And it looks like because of his authority and because of his accomplishments, he had attracted a following among the church in Corinth. And it had gone way beyond simple admiration. It was growing into divisiveness or divisiveness. So first, he identifies himself. Why are you trying to say you're following me? Like I'm the Christ. That's what he's saying. Second, he identifies those who follow Apollos. Now let me tell you something right now. This dude was probably the baddest preacher in the New Testament. Seriously, this guy, was in, this guy was incredibly gifted. He would preach, when he was converted and, and discipled a bit under um, that couple, I can never remember their name, but they have rhyming names. Like, you know what, when they met, they're like, hey, our names rhyme, we should get married. What was it? Priscilla and Aquila, right? It's like, your name's Priscilla, mine's Aquila. You want to tie the knot? Let's do it, right? They discipled him because when he first got converted, he was kind of thinking a little bit about, like he had kind of John the Baptist's view of the gospel, which wasn't holistic, and and they kind of discipled him a little bit and helped him. But once this man fully comprehended the full gospel, he became an assassin in, in the pulpit. He would just assassinate false theology and obliterate it. There were, and he would preach to Jews all the time, and they could not even contend with him. He would go into the Old Testament and just, just, you know, tie everything intricately to Christ and leave his audience either riveted or completely blown out without any sort of apologetic to respond to. The guy was an immensely powerful, eloquent, talented preacher. He, he would have been kind of like, and he was bold, he would have been kind of like the Steve Lawson of today or maybe the Paul Washer where they preach and you're just kind of gripped by what they're saying. And they do have that eloquence and power in what they're saying. And we know it's all God. But he was that guy. He was absolutely amazing. The scripture describes him this way. He was, um, he was an evangelist. He was an apologist. He was a leader in the church. He was, in a, he was even a good friend of the Apostle Paul. He was a Jew from Alexandria, Egypt. He, was, he has been in scripture described as eloquent competent in the scriptures, instructed in the way of the Lord, fervent in the spirit, a sound teacher, and a bold speaker. That's all hidden right there in Acts 24 to 26a. This is how the Bible describes him. God saw fit to honor this preacher by describing who he was here and his talents and abilities. That's amazing. 
And as I said, he was mentored a bit by Aquila and Priscilla, Acts 18, 26 to be. And really all they did was set him straight on the difference between Christian baptism and John the Baptist's version. They helped him on that. After a little bit of theological training, he just became a beast in the pulpit. It says in Acts 18, 28, he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that Christ, uh, that the Christ was Jesus or is Jesus. Apollos traveled through Achaia and eventually found his way to Corinth, Acts 19, 1. Do you know what he became once he settled in Corinth? He became the pastor of the Corinthian church and the primary preacher. He was the lead pastor of this church in a way. He was the primary preacher. And let me tell you something right now. Because of his immense talent and ability, not of his own doing, he was just immensely talented, very well-spoken, very articulate, good with stories, illustrations, unbelievable at unpacking the Old Testament and pointing to Christ. Because of those abilities and skills, he drew a serious following. And that's why people were saying, oh yeah, you follow Paul? I got you. I follow a Paul. I follow a Paul. A Paul? Paul? No, a Paulus. Oh man, you follow Apollos. Okay. Well, Paul's better because he planted the church. Thank you. Bye. It's literally what's going on. The dude was amazing. He was eloquent and gifted, and people were now trying to follow him. Third, Paul identifies those who follow Cephas. Every time I see that name, I think of Hank Williams Jr., Bo Cephas. It's not him. This is Cephas. This is the Aramaic word or name for Peter. We're probably talking about the Apostle Peter here. We don't know for sure, but we're probably talking about the Apostle Peter. I mean, of all the Cephases that were around in that day, I think that Cephas, Peter, Simon Peter, was probably the most well-known. Is he not the head apostle? He is. I mean, the entire papacy based all their popes on him. That's how important he was, and they should have never done that. He, it's gotta, I think it's Peter. I don't know for sure. That's the Aramaic name for is Cephas for Peter. We don't know exactly who it was, but maybe that's him. And this person called Cephas is mentioned in three other places in this letter. Chapter 3, verse 22. Chapter 9, verse 5. Chapter 15, verse 5. Like the other men, this particular guy, Cephas, he had serious skill in preaching, just serious skills in preaching and teaching. Uh, if it was Cephas the apostle, we know his ability. We are very well accustomed to his ability. We, we read and study his record, especially in Acts 2, with that first sermon that is mind-blowing. Mind-blowing. I would say that, that Peter himself was basically a beast in the pulpit as well. He preached bold, hard, and fast. He really did. And he was kind of like a Steve Lawson in a way, too. And the Spirit really worked through his ministry, right? Thousands and thousands of souls were saved through the preaching ministry of Peter, and we know this to be true because if you read it, you can read about it in Acts 2, 14 to 41, and in the very next chapter, chapter 3, verse 11, all the way through chapter 4, verse 4, there are like five, 6,000 people that are saved through a couple sermons. This is, this is like revival-level, powerful, potent preaching. Cephas, with his extreme talent, had attracted a following among the church at Corinth. Uh, but this, you know, it should have been simple admiration, but it was growing into uh, a cultish kind of fixation and then divisiveness. And then lastly, uh, Paul identifies those who follow Christ. Those who follow Christ. So, is this Christ? Christ? 
Because we know if you study the New Testament carefully, you'll know that there were many who came along who said they were Christ and they weren't Christ. In fact, I think it was Jesus that said that many Christs will arise and come. So is this, is this Christ? Yes, this is Christ. This is our Christ. This is the Messiah. This is Jesus Christ. This is our Lord and Savior. So the interesting thing to me is there is a negative connotation to the first three names, right? You shouldn't be following Paul. That's negative. You shouldn't be following Cephas. You shouldn't be following Apollos. And now he's saying, I, I've got to deal with those who are following Christ. Isn't that what we're supposed to be doing? Why would Christ, our Christ, the Christ, Jesus Christ, the Lord, the Savior, the one who shed his blood, the Lamb of God, the King of kings, Lord of lords, why would Paul admonish a group who says, oh yeah, we're following Christ? Because that's what we're supposed to do, right? Well, there was big trouble in little China here. There was. This was, this was a carnal kind of following of Christ. This was a carnal view of Christ. They did not have a proper perspective or even following of Christ. In some ways, I think it was a boasting point. Well, you know, you got that group over there boasting about, uh, you know, following Paul. You got this group boasting about following Apollos. You got this group over here boasting about, you know, following Cephas. And then there's other groups boasting about this. Our group, you know who we follow? We follow Christ, man. And he's better than all your guys, right? That's kind of what's happening. But the way they were following Christ was in a competitive way along with the other groups. And that's not how we follow Christ. So Christ is included here, not because of Christ's fault, but because of these people. Paul flagged them because they are not following Christ properly. I would say their devotion was defective. This, or the Christ, I'll call them the Christ camp, because I think it's easier to remember. The Christ camp claimed to receive special visitations from Christ himself. Oh, sounds like the first expression of charismania, doesn't it? Oh, well, he's, you know what? You got your groups, but we follow Christ, and he gives us special visitations. And by the way, when he visits us, he says special things to us. He gives us special revelations. What were they doing? They were boasting about this greater intimacy and these visitations from Christ, these secret meetings and this revelation that Christ was giving them alone. Because what they're essentially saying is that Christ prefers our group and he visits us and he talks to us and you've just got Paul and you've just got Cephas and you've just got Apollos. They're good guys, but we've got the Christ. That's what they were doing. And that's why this is, that's why they're getting nuked. This is a totally wrong view of Christ. And, and Paul just, I mean, this is in some ways, the first thing that came to mind was this is kind of cultish with the special visitations and the special revelations and the unique intimacy that only our little group gets, this is David Koresh-level weirdness. It is. This is cultish. And Paul absolutely hammers the Christ camp. And any believer who claims superiority over any other believer in verses 26 to 31 down below, he says, you think that you, Christ chose you and you're special in all this stuff? Oh, yeah, well, here's the way that it really works. God chose what is foolish in the world 
men, women, and children who are not wise according to world standards, who are not powerful, who are not of nobility, who are actually lowly and despised. And, it is, and he teaches them down in that lower section to humble them and really to humiliate them. And it is because of God that these fools that God has chosen, it's because of God that the fools of the world, which is what Christians are, it's because of God that these fools are in Christ to begin with. This is what he's saying here. Therefore, no flesh can boast about anything in the presence of the all-present God. Bragging about some kind of special relationship and revelations from Christ and then lording that over other believers, that is the pinnacle of arrogance. It really is. That makes the group that claim to follow Christ literally worse than the other groups. The ones who profess to be following Christ were more despicable than the ones who profess to follow men. Isn't that amazing that somebody could be following Christ for all the wrong reasons and turn out to be more despicable than those who follow men? That's exactly what he's saying here. And he just blasts them. You know what he calls this Christ camp, what they were doing? He calls it glorying in the flesh. You think you're glorying in the Lord, but you're glorying in your flesh. That's what he says in verse 29, and the King James expresses it that way. And this is just pure evil. Let's move to the third A. That was his alarm and all these other things. Uh, Paul's admonition, verse 13, he says this. This is where he really starts to correct. Is Christ divided? What? (laughs) Look at what he says. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? That's what he says. Stop there. This is, an, this is an admonition. What is an admonition? It's a warning. It's a reproof given by some kind of ecclesiastical authority. And in this case, Paul is the ecclesiastical authority. He's the a, a church authority by the, by the uh, authority and headship of Christ who's making this correction, this admonition. And what does he do here? Uh, he, his admonition... It comes in the form of three rhetorical questions, questions that you're not supposed to answer because you should know the answer. If you don't, you got issues. First thing he says, first question he asks, is Christ divided? The obvious answer is no. Christ is not divided. He is the opposite. He is indivisible. He cannot be divided. He's not even divided in his person. He's not part man and part God. He's truly man and truly God. He is immutable. That means unchanging, which means he can't divide, James 1.17. He is what? He cannot divide at all. Why? Because he is the same yesterday and today and forevermore, Hebrews 13.8. Since Christ is not divided, the church cannot be divided. If the church divides over preferences or tertiary, secondary issues... It literally ceases to be like its indivisible, undividable head. It really becomes a blasphemous anomaly. When the church is just filled with bickering and divisions over fleshly, earthly, carnal preferences, it becomes an abomination to God. It's not the church now. It's something else. It looks and sounds and smells like the world. Because that's what the world does. Divides over everything, black, white, brown, yellow, orange. My color is what matters. Black lives matter. This is what 
people do. And when the church does this over even theological issues, it is not acting or looking, smelling anything like the church at all. It's become the world around it, which means it's useless because the world around us is what? Useless, dying, going to burn, perishing, lost, shattered, in darkness, broken. Man, it, it's, 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 it is, I don't want to say frustrating, but I want to say it is an angering thing to God for the church that he purchased for his son through his son's own blood for the church to divide over things, anything, anything at all. Points of theology, preferred teachers. It's just a, a terrible, terrible thing. Second rhetorical, he asks, was Paul crucified for you? Okay, so just so you know, this is where he starts entering in the sarcasm because he hits them with full-blown sarcasm, and this is where he starts doing it. He's essentially saying, did I die to pay for your sins? The obvious answer is no. Paul was not crucified for them. The apostle was not their Lord and Savior. Christ, Christ was crucified for them. The Lamb of God led to the slaughter, John 1, 29a, Isaiah 53, 7. Who does what takes away the sins of the world, John 1, 29b. Every sinner who receives salvation in Jesus Christ by grace through faith is commanded to give full allegiance to Jesus Christ. He is their Lord. They bow to Him alone. They follow Him alone. The crucifixion, sin atoning death, and supernatural resurrection has earned Jesus Christ our Savior sole devotion from His subjects. His enthronement as Lord of Lords and King of Kings is the immutable precedent by which all creation shall yield to His glory. Acts 2.36, Revelation 17.14, Philippians chapter 2 verses 10 to 11. Now, I would say this, Paul, I bring up all this theology about Christ because he's the only one that's worthy of being followed because he is the crucified Savior for us. That's why I want you to understand who he is. He has earned our servitude. He has earned our submission. Paul and nobody else deserves it, only him. Now, we do submit to elders as they submit to Christ. And when they fail to submit to Christ, we don't submit to them. But the point here is that Christ is the only one because He was crucified. Now, I would, I would say this. There are some Christians who are worth imitating. Okay? They set an example of holiness we should seek to imitate, we should seek to emulate. I know what you're thinking right now. You're thinking, Bruce, amen. It's sad that you're not thinking of me. I need to get my stuff together. There are some Christians, and I'm just kidding about that. You can follow me to a degree, and I'll tell you when not to, which is about every six hours. We, there are, are there not some Christians that we, you, you look at and you say, wow, that guy has a, or that gal, that guy or gal has an amazing walk with Christ, and, and I, I should try to imitate that. I can learn from that. Paul himself told the Corinthians to imitate him as he follows Christ, 1 Corinthians 11, 1. There is a, you need to understand, there is a chasmic difference between imitating godly people and following Christ. Okay, the Corinthians had deviated away from imitating their leaders to following them. They're only supposed to follow Christ because He alone was crucified for them. 
Following Christ requires full submission, soul devotion, our highest adoration. Imitation requires none of that. None of it. You just see an example and you follow it. The Corinthians had shifted what belongs to Christ onto their teachers. When they bragged about following this guy or that guy, they were ascribing headship, praise, and glory to those men instead of to Christ. Don't get me wrong, we should imitate godly people. We should give honor where honor is due, Proverbs 3.27. But Christ alone is worthy of this kind of full-orbed commitment, this kind of boasting about Him, this kind of devotion, this kind of love toward Him, this kind of submission. He alone is worthy of our very, very best and that level of attention and focus because He alone was, as Paul says, crucified for us. Paul didn't, I didn't die for you. Why are you following me? Peter didn't die for you. Why are you following him like you're supposed to be following Christ? Apollos didn't die for you. Why are you treating him like he's your savior? And you're boasting about him and you don't even boast about Christ. And down at the end of this chapter, he says, if we boast, we boast in Christ alone. Why are you doing this? You are treating these men as if they were crucified and paid for your ugly, nasty sin. And now you're even sinning against the Lord by putting your allegiance on sinful men who are just redeemed by grace. This is what he's saying here. Christ alone deserves this kind of full-orbed commitment because He alone was crucified for us. Third, he says this after saying, were you, did Paul, was Paul crucified for you? Listen to this third. Were you baptized in the name of Paul? <laughs> if they had been, it was weird. The Corinthians had been baptized. This, this was a baptized group of believers. In biblical times, baptism proceeded soon after conversion, not years later like with some folks today. That's always kind of mystified me. Like, I got saved 20 years ago. I'm getting baptized today. It's like, huh? Never could get my mind around that. Because in the New Testament, people got saved and they got baptized right after, sometimes right there in the moment. The Ethiopian eunuch, hey, there's a puddle, ba-boom, Philip's dunking him, right? Probably came up with an amoeba in his ear, now he has COVID. Look, back then, if you confessed with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believed in your hearts that God raised him from the dead, you were immediately dunked in the name of Paul, in the name of Paulos, in the name of Cephas, no, you were dunked in the name of Christ? No. In the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, in the name of the Spirit. That's how they were baptized. Romans 10.9, Acts 16.33, Matthew 28.19. I suppose it's okay to get baptized in the name of Christ only. There's a camp out there that says, and there's a camp. That's a little cult group that says, oh, if you got baptized in the name of the Trinity... You're not a Christian. You've got to get baptized in the name of Christ. Well, I, I don't know how you deal with Matthew 28, 19. These people had been baptized in the triune God. No one was baptized in the name of the human baptizer. I don't know if that's even been heard of. I study church history. I haven't seen that one yet. I'm sure I'll find it somewhere maybe during the, I don't know. I don't think it would be during the Reformation. It could have been maybe during some period if, pa if Paul baptized you, right, and he did do a few baptisms there, he baptized you in the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. If Cephas baptized you, and there's no record of him baptizing anyone in, Cor in Corinth, but if he did, he would have baptized you in the name of the Trinity. 
That was the rule according to Scripture, and it's the rule today. Baptism represents union with Christ. As we go under the water, we are buried with Him in His death. As we arise from the water, we are raised with Him in His resurrection. That is the symbolism. The baptizer is just an instrument in the hands of the Lord. Uh, you know, really, He's just the instrument that does it for the Lord. So in a way, as a body member, that servant who's baptizing you, it's really Christ who's baptizing you through the hands and effort of that human instrument. We are baptized by Christ through a human instrument in the name of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Think of it like that. That's proper biblical baptism. It's amazing to think that Christ is performing the ritual, the act on His child through a human instrument. This is why we're called the body of Christ. Christ's body is seated at the right hand of God, but He manifests His body in His church. Hence the reason why you can't have division. If you have division, you have a divided Christ, and you're in big trouble here. We are baptized in the Trinity because all three members of the Godhead are involved in our salvation. The Father wrought the plan, the Son bought the plan, and the Holy Spirit brought the plan. Paul's point is very simple. Since none of the Corinthians were baptized in the names of their teachers, why were they committing such devotion to them? Why were they following and boasting about their teachers instead of the one in whom they were symbolically buried and raised with in baptism, Christ Christ alone is the indivisible crucified Savior in which or in whom new believers are baptized. Therefore, He alone is the sole benefactor of such high-level submission, devotion, and adoration, any boasting, anything like that. We follow Christ. He is our head. He is our high priest. He is our high prophet. He is our good shepherd, our Lord, our King, and He is our baptism. We were baptized not just in His name, but in Him as His body members, as His covenantal body members. Remember this. Remember this if you've been baptized. And if you haven't and you're a believer, you should get baptized. Take a step of faith and do it. Last A, Paul's appreciation. This is full-blown sarcasm. This is sarcasm even greater than Dave Doyle can unleash, and I've seen it come from him. This is, this, Dave, you need to follow his example here because this is heavy. You're, you need to up your sarcasm game. Because this is sarcasm 101, verses 14 to 15. Uh, I thank God. Actually, it's verses 14 to 16. And we're going to look at 14 to 15 first. I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that none may say that you were baptized in my name. And then verse 16, I did baptize also the house of... No, we're doing all the verses. I did baptize also the house of Stephanus, Beyond that, I do not whether I baptized anyone else. So there's the rest of this text. What is Paul appreciating? He is sarcastically appreciating in this very moment that he didn't baptize more Corinthians because he's afraid that this would have upped his little cultish clique that was following him against his will. If he had baptized more people there, there'd probably be more people. You know, there would probably be people saying, well, I, was, I not only follow Paul, I was baptized in the name of Paul. If he had baptized the whole church, the whole church might have been doing this because this was their goofy, silly, stupid, stupid pattern. I think what they would have done is they would have lorded that over people. Oh, yeah, you follow Apollos? Great. Were you baptized in his name? No, because that's not a service he performs. We follow Paul, and guess what? As a benefit, he baptizes in his names. We were baptized in his name. Our club is better than yours. This is his sarcastic, quippy kind of, you know, witty 
response to them. He thinks that, oh, if I'd done more baptisms there, it'd be even worse. You'd probably be worshiping me. And he was worshiped in some pagan towns when he preached the gospel or performed a miracle. And he would say, I'm just a man. No, you look like, you sound like Hermes and, and Barnabas. I think that's Zeus. We're not gods. We're just men. Paul admits to baptizing a few members, such as Crispus, the synagogue leader, Acts 18.8, and Gaius, who owned the building where the church met, Romans 16.23, uh, and the household of Stephanus. Those were the first con converts in Achaia who became faithful servants in the Corinthian church. In other words, those are the first people that got saved by the gospel when Paul first entered that community at Corinth. That's 1 Corinthians 16.15. Beyond that, Paul says, I don't recall baptizing anyone else. Thank you, Jesus, because I don't know where this would have went. It is pure sarcasm, and it is justified because these folks were acting crazy, weren't they? They were. Idolatry is probably the highest expression of carnal insanity. Jeremiah 50, verse 38 says something about people going mad over their idols. And this is essentially what we see here in this church. Men were, in a sense, worshiping other men, their teachers, and it was dividing the church. The only antidote for such idolatry or this kind of craziness or carnal thinking or carnal mindset is the gospel, because it obliterates all human sufficiency by revealing the depths of our depravity and sin and by pointing us to the all-sufficient death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. He literally did for us what no other man could ever do for us. Therefore, He alone is worthy of being followed. He alone is worthy of our submission. He alone is worthy of our highest devotion and admiration and adoration. And He alone is worthy of all such boasting, only boasting in Christ. 1 Corinthians 1.31 the fact of the matter is, as I close, I do appreciate a great many men who faithfully preached God's Word. Most of them are dead, been dead for a long time. As I was just reflecting on this text and, and how it would be applicable to me and, and where sometimes I'm tempted to put my allegiance on someone other than Christ or to boast about someone other than Christ or to adore someone other than Christ. I'm not talking about my wife or anything. I do adore her. If I worship her, I'm in trouble. But as I was thinking about myself, I thought about some of the, the great men of God and, and preachers of church history that have had uh, just an exponential impact on my life and theology. You think of Polycarp. You know, he was friends with uh, the Apostle John, who wrote Revelation, was around for that. He was a historical pre-mill guy, so we should go there. Uh, Polycarp, Athanasius, Chrysostom, Augustine, Wycliffe, Luther, Tyndale, Calvin, Knox, Edwards, Whitfield, Ryle. Ryle is one of my all-time favorites. J.C. Ryle, obviously, Spurgeon. How about C.S. Lewis? Yeah, he had a different soteriology than me, but the man was brilliant. Mere Christianity is one of the greatest extra-biblical Christian works ever written. Every one of you should read it. Martin Lloyd-Jones, some later guys like Jones, and then obviously James Montgomery Boyce has had a tremendous impact on me, and our beloved R.C. Sproul. 
I appreciate the contribution that these men have made into my life through their writings. In fact, I consider them and, 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 and some others my earthly teachers in a way. What I've gleaned from their commentaries on Scripture and extra-biblical writings, it's just invaluable. It's priceless to me. These men set some really, really good examples that are also worth imitating. And this is why I like to read biographies. Theologies tell you how they thought about God. Biographies tell you how they lived their life. Who loves biography? I do. Oh, but here's the deal, right? Some of them are worth imitating, emulating, but I must never follow them as if they were Christ. Never. They are worthy of honor, and the Bible says in that proverb, give honor where honor is due, but I must never honor them the way that I am called to honor Christ. They are worth being mentioned, their theologies and these things, their lives, their biographies. They're worth being debated. They're worth being discussed with others. But I mustn't adore and boast in them, for all such adoration and boasting must go to the indivisible Christ who was crucified for me and in whom, in his name and whom I was baptized." That's where my allegiance, that's where my following, that's where my full submission, that's where the delights of my heart, the admiration of my mind and my emotions, the adoration that I can express, it must all go to Him. And the life of the Christian is a daily battle of keeping all of that on Him. 